Welcome to The Bounce, sports talk with a spin. This is the podcast where sports becomes eclectic. We talk about everything from fascinating athletes you've never heard of to taking a deep dive into sports issues that don't always make the news. So whether you're an athlete, a fan, or just want to know more about sports, The Bounce has got you covered. Attorney Travis Tigert has been labeled a knight in shining armor. As the longtime head of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, Tigert has taken on high-profile doping cases, from cyclist Lance Armstrong to track champions Marion Jones and Justin Gatlin, who were stripped of their Olympic medals. Tigert says most athletes don't set out to cheat, but they're put in a culture where they feel it's the only way to win. Hey, Travis, welcome to The Bounce. So awesome to have you on. Thanks, Jill. It's awesome to be invited to be on. I know we met a few years ago out here in Colorado Springs at Play the Game Conference, and I'm honored that you would, uh, after that, follow up with me and ask me to be on. So uh, thrilled to be here. But but of course, you are like my anti-doping superhero. Um, it's No, it's true. You've been called the, like the well, knight in shining armor for- Oh my uh, gosh. Uh, I, I need you to tell my kids that because they certainly don't believe that for a second. But it's too bad we're not on video now because you see my face is absolutely bright red. I'm embarrassed by those kind of comments. But but listen, thank you. It's a it's a huge responsibility and burden um, to do anti-doping and stand up for the rule of law and, and ethics in sport. Um, and we just try our best and have an incredible team of people here, starting with our board and all the way down um, trying to trying to do the right thing for clean sport and the rights of athletes. You know, the conversations about doping are always ever evolving. And as I say, every day brings sort of a new doping scandal or new twist. What here in um, the midpoint of sort of 2022, what are some of the biggest challenges in, in your world in, in anti-doping? Yeah, you know, I, I think at the macro level, um, you know, what I what I worry about most is the the world's um, belief that the rules uh, it's seeming belief and I don't and I don't think it's everyone it's maybe in the headlines and maybe with certain countries and certain politicians etc that that ethics don't matter anymore that the rules and the rule of law the rule of sport don't matter anymore and and that it's a hyper competitive world and you have to get what you can get while you can get it even if that means trampling the rights of you know fellow competitors or you know whatever the situation where you're in a competitive environment may may ultimately dictate. So so that's what worries me the most. And I think it's why what we do and all of us around the globe who are in, in, in anti-doping are at the tip of the spear of that, you know, values-based fight. Um, it's certainly a complicated um, arena of science and law and sport, sport politics, unfortunately. Um, but But at the heart of it, it's truly about, you know, doing what's right under... The rule of law that is the foundation, I think, of of all societies, certainly democratic societies, and and the erosion of that that we've seen over the the past twenty years, um, you know, just continues to worry and worry and worry us. I, I guess at the micro level, obviously, we're coming off of, um, you know, COVID to some extent. Um, we have major events coming back to the United States for really the first time in in many years. You know, if you look, we've got the world games happening right now in Birmingham, Alabama. We've got the World Athletics Championships happening. Um, I leave to go there tomorrow in Eugene, mm. Oregon. We've yeah. got the Fish U World University Games on the winter side. We've got the World Cup 
FIFA come in in 2026, of course, the Olympic Games and then Paralympic Games in 2028. And, and so you, you see, you know, the post-COVID situation, um, you know, staffing, funding, being able to fulfill the promise. Um, I think we've got the, you know, the foundation in place and things like the Rachinkoff Act, you know, thankfully our um, congressional recognition and, and funding, um, but there's significant challenges on a, on a micro level that we have to continue to, to work through to, to be successful and actually deliver on that promise. And then the last point I'll, I'll make, while I think we're all ready to put Russia and its state-sponsored doping in the rearview mirror and frankly ha- wish it never happened to begin with, um, we have to face the reality as tired as many of us are of having to talk about it and raise awareness around it and demand the system do more to protect sport and provide justice for athletes who were damaged by the Russia state-sponsored doping. We have to recognize right now, no international federation can go into Russia right now to test. And, and we know that we can't rely on the national country to test. And so at some point when all Russian athletes are allowed to compete again, there's going to be you know serious questions about what has happened since the invasion of Ukraine from a testing standpoint. And, and I appreciate that the invasion of Ukraine is a, a whole different level from whether Russian athletes are, are being tested on a global level. But, but when those athletes are permitted again, and, and they're allowed in some sports, but when they're permitted again in major international competitions, the question is going to be, you know, what has happened over the last however many months it ends up turning out to be when anti-doping simply couldn't go into Russia and do the job that it's supposed to do. And, and, and what is the answer to that? And where are the solutions? And, and unfortunately, you're not hearing anyone on the global stage talk about that whatsoever. Um, and, and it's something that we're very mindful of. And it's something that our both sport federations, as well as our athletes are, are overly concerned about. Athletes who sort of have uh, changed their alliance from, from Russia to like Kazakhstan or Georgia, I guess, so they can compete, but I'm, I'm sure that doesn't do them any, any favors in, um, in testing either. Um, are those countries as amenable to, to testing or is it really everything sort of within the Russian orbit that is up for grabs? Yeah, I th- you know, I think, I mean, for w- what, the, what the evidence clearly demonstrated, right, was Russia was run in a state-sponsored system and there were, you know, hundreds, um, some reports, thousands of athletes um, involved with that state-sponsored system. So that, that's beyond question and, and really the proof of any improvement or change in culture or the system there hasn't, hasn't been shown. In fact, there's evidence to the, to the contrary. So, you know, I, I think we have to ask, um, what are all of us doing? And, and look, I'm, I'm by no means saying we're perfect, right? We're, we're trying to evolve. We, we try to be better, you know, today than we were yesterday. And it is a complex, ever-evolving um, world from a scientific standpoint and the types of things athletes and entourages and state-sponsored doping, um, contri- you know, conspirators will try to get a hold of to defeat the system. Um, and, and we, you know, even those of us around the world that might have the will and the determination and the belief in the rule of law to fully implement the program in the most robust ways and have the resources to, to do it, um, you know, we, we have to also be better. So it, it is a significant challenge, but, but clearly there are areas around the world, like we saw in Russia, 
um, that just aren't even meeting, um, you know, are running a, a, a doping program, not an anti-doping program. <laughs> and, and so we have to be realistic about that and ensure that, you know, uh, the weakest link in the system is what defines the system. And if the weakest link is corrupt and robbing clean athletes, then that has to change. We're back in a minute with The Bounce, Sports Talk with a Spin, talking anti-doping with Travis Tiger. Do you have any contact with Lance Armstrong now? Or you know, we, even- we, we used to, we, you know, we've met several times and had, um, you know, after the, the case and, and particularly after, um, you know, his, his admission and recognition, um, we, we met several times and we're in communication. We haven't communicated, oh. you know, recently, but, um, it, but, but that path is, uh, in my mind, at least has always, has always been open in there since, um, he, he agreed to come in and, and, and do that. Oh, that's, that's, that's good to know. Uh, cause Lance still has a, a very significant following and there's still a lot of people who pay attention to, to what he says. Um, yeah, and, you, and you may remember, I mean, I've, I've said it before, but just to remind folks, um, you know, we, we tried to get, before we brought the charges against Lance, we tried to get him to come in and sit down with us and, and what we described and characterized as be part of the solution where he would come, come forward. Like, you know, many of his teammates did be honest, be truthful, help, help us get to the bottom of this dirty culture. You know, we weren't about sanctioning um, only the athletes. Now, they all obviously had to pay for the choices that they made at some level within the rules, but we were willing to use those rules as, you know, beneficial as possible on the athletes, including Lance, whether it was six months or at one point we were pushing for amnesty, quite honestly, because we felt if we Hmm. weren't able to do that and the athletes didn't come forward with truthful, you know, facts, documents, um, evidence that the people in the system that oversaw this dirty, corrupt system were just going to have a new batch of athletes just to corrupt all over again. And, and so we made a strategic decision at the very beginning of, you know, the evidence in our investigation in the case when the evidence came to us that that, that was what was best to get rid of this dirty culture. Um, but unfortunately, at that time in, in June of 2012 was when that happened. So, you know, basically 10 years ago, um, you know, he decided to go a different route and, and fight it and then sued us. And, and, and then we moved forward on the case. But once the case and all the evidence came out, he, he obviously realized um, the truth prevailed. You know, he did come in and sit down with us and um, we tried to work through some things. But, you know, unfortunately, it, it was kind of late at that point um, and, and way late in the effort to clean up the sport as much as we probably could have if he and a few others, you know, his team director at the time, um, would have come in. It, it could have been even more successful at resetting that culture um, on a on a clean sport platform. Uh, so, Travis, switching gears a, a little bit, one thing that I found really um, interesting in and not in a, a good way is, I mean, I think that you guys have done such a good job with the Olympic movement, and because um, you you know you don't run WADA, which is the World Anti Doping Organization, you're you're at USADA, you know, which is obviously a, a, a very strong player. But outside of that, like at the um, at the French Open, when Rafa Nadal was getting injections for his for his foot, um, it, like 
I'm like, isn't that doping? <laughs> you know, he even said, I remember at one point, if I have to continue getting injections that basically numb my foot, I don't want to play anymore because he was concerned about his his health, but not doping. And then I then I read that um, for uh, the uh, it's ITA, right, the Inter uh, International Tennis Federation, that they were telling players in advance when their their doping tests were going to be. I mean, where do we draw the line when it comes to to that? Like, isn't that isn't that doping? Yeah. So you know, obviously, can't comment on any specific um, situation or you know the the um, Nadal situation that you mentioned. And you know, we firmly believe in the you know presumption of innocence, and it's a fundamental principle here. Unless and until someone through that legal process, you know, it would be unfair to um, through that legal process has been shown to commit a violation. But but at the end of the day, I, I think the rules are there. It, it's a rules-based question. And so the rule is, did an athlete in a particular situation, you know, do something that was totally fine and allowed by the rules? And in fact, in those situations, and my guess is that's probably, you know, you could speculate, but, um, you know, my guess is someone acknowledging they were using a aspirin or a, a painkiller or whatever, that's perfectly fine within the rules. And and so the rules are there to protect those so that, you know, the public or media or others don't say, well, they're doping, aren't they? Well, no, the, the rules define that. And, and we all have to be comfortable that the rules define that. It's not some subjective, hey, I don't think you should be able to take three aspirin before you go step on a basketball court or, or whatever situation we want to, we want to create for, for the debate. So, so then it puts a big, a lot of pressure on the rule makers, right? You want to make sure those rules are fair, that they have a purpose and reason behind them, that there's a transparent and open process by which you take feedback on those rules. You then publish those rules well in advance so that athletes have an opportunity to be protected when they do abide by those rules but then clean athletes are also protected when someone may violate those rules that they're totally held uh, accountable. You know, the, the tennis, um, and just to contrast, the International Testing Agency, which is the ITA, which is different from the International um, Tennis Federation, right. the ITF, I think, um, and their independent unit. You know, there, there's, some, there's some rules that um, I'm not familiar with maybe that they use to – if if it's true, they scheduled the test. I read the same report. You know that that's not something that that we do. That's really a question, I think, for for them and WADA if that's um, allowed or appropriate under the rules. Um, but but not something that that we do. You know. You know that said, I, I think certainly blood tests um, are with short notice, even if scheduled, are are much more difficult to manipulate and alter mm -hmm. the result than. Um, a, you know, urine test. And I think there's some, you know, compelling scientific justification why it might not be common practice. And, and as I said, we don't do it. There is some, um, you know, from an athlete biological passport, even if you had notice and you tried to manipulate your, if you combined a scheduled test with a no notice test, the differences between those two parameters can be very compelling evidence. And so I'm, I wouldn't say I'm totally against an athlete biological passport scheduled test. Um, but again, that, has, that, that may be my opinion. 
that should be debated. It should be open, transparent, should be then determined in the rule. Is that going to be accepted or not accepted? So I'm going to trot out uh, like this shop-worn question. (laughs) Here we go. Because people ask me this all the time, especially after I came out with with Tainted, my uh, documentary Tainted Blood. They said, you know, why don't you just let everybody dope? Because that would then level level the playing field. And I mean, I have my answer to that, but I'm putting it to you. Why why doesn't that argument hold water? Yeah, I, and, and listen, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm as a philosophy major, I of course, <laughs> I, you know, intellectually try to push myself to 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 hear those concerns and and answer those questions. I mean, I think for me, it boils down to a couple a couple really important reasons, and I think you have to ask, ask your question or ask yourself. What would sport look like if you ended up doing that? And, and I think number one, it would just be an arms race all over again. Exactly. And so, you know, if we were okay, hey, it's at a therapeutic level, we'll let you use some human growth hormone or EPA or testosterone. Well, athletes that want to gain an advantage who are willing to cheat, don't have the ethic to do it the right way, will cheat to win. They're going to use more than a therapeutic use dose. And so that's going to push athletes to an extreme. And, and we're still in this same hey, it's tough to detect. It's a complicated world. Is it always fair in, in any given sport? You know, second, I think you have this responder issue. And while I think it's easy to say, hey, everyone, you know, and we used to hear it in the Peloton around our, our postal services, Armstrong investigation. Well, they were all using it. It was a level playing field and I won on the level playing field. But the reality of that is not the case. Certain, and you could look at our Johan Bruniel court of arbitration for sport decision. And you, you see the evidence that, you know, the gold, the pot of gold from a doping standpoint were blood transfusions. And they kept the blood transfusions just to a couple of the riders, of course, Lance and a few others on the team, but no one else had the money or the access. Um, and, and there was a game changing difference between just using, you know, being able to have access to the blood transfusion versus even just using, you know, EPO that more was more commonly available to the other. So, so I think what we do is we push, you know, sport to be who can develop the best performance enhancing drug and keep it in the fewest people's hands in order to, to win. I I think three, you got to look at the economic value of sport. I, I think, I think we love it because it, you know, there are, there are, you know, uh, machines that compete like NASCAR or Formula One. And we love that, but it's open. It's obvious. We know that they're machines. We don't, I don't think love the tour de France because it's cyborgs or robots. Now maybe, you know, drone racing and some <laughs> e-sport is coming online more so, but we love the tour de France because one, it, 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 connects us to our history when, you know, it was two bikes, you know, two wheels and chains was the primary mode of transportation. And we love seeing humans, not cyborgs or robots, riding up the mountains and trying to win the Tour de France. And I, and I think that's the value of it. And you could extrapolate that, uh, you know, on and on and on about a lot of other sports. The last point I'll make, and, and as a father of three, kids aren't so young anymore, but do still have, you know, one in the house. Well, two in the house now, one's leaving for college here soon, but one who will be in the house for the next few years. The trickle-down effect, it, it would just be unacceptable because, if it, it, because what would happen if we allow, let's say, okay, adults 
who are professionals can make the decision to use whatever drugs they want. If sport allowed that, all athletes are going to have to use the drugs to be competitive. Bar none, you will have to. And there will be a drug for your sport that will allow you to be competitive. Well, to get to the pro level here in the United States, at least, you're going to have to use those same drugs to be competitive at the college level. And oh, by the way, if you want to be competitive at the college level, you got to be competitive in high school. And if you want to be in competitive in high school, you got to be competitive in junior high school or middle school and on and on and on. And so the question I think then becomes at what age are we going to be okay with parents and kids injecting themselves with these dangerous drugs? And I haven't met one scientist or doctor who has said, you know what, given these synthetic drugs to, you know, a eight, 10, 12 year old for sport performance is a good idea. Like I always used to think track cycling was uh, taking doping out of it was like the real test because everybody had basically the same track bike. They were really stripped down, you know, Um, not the case. Uh, Looking at bikes now, it's certainly not not the case anymore. I don't even recognize these bikes um, from even five, five years ago. So I think you're kind of having this pa- almost like parallel path. No, I, 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 for sure it is. And, you know, I, as, a, as a baseball player growing up, I, I'll never forget uh, my high school team when um, one of our coaches brought in all the wood bats for batting practice. And, and we, we all, none of us could hit the ball the infield with a wood bat where our <laughs> aluminum bats, even back in that day, you could, you know, you didn't have to be much of a player to get it out of the infield with an aluminum bat. So th- this you know, debate of what, how quick or not sport should evolve and what technology should be introduced to it is not new by any stretch. And it, and it doesn't apply just to anti-doping. I think the anti-doping, um, you know, like those rules are, are equally important and should be, you know, well-thought, open, transparent processes. But, but once the rules set, you know, whether the basket and basketball is 10 feet or nine feet, we don't, we don't really care. Maybe there's a reason for it to be 10 versus nine that has something to do with the competition and, and, and maybe it's better at 10 than nine. But what's most important is that everyone plays on a 10-foot basket. Some people don't get to play on a nine-foot and the other team that they're competing against gets to play um, or has to play on the 10-foot basket. That, that would be totally unfair. And I think you know, that's the world we live in. What, wherever sport decides the rules around anti-doping are going to land, then we all who are in the trenches, and, and that's us, who implement those rules and force those rules, we ought to do it without you know, fear or favor um, and as robustly as we possibly can because the people that are relying on those rules to protect them, um, to give them the equal opportunity to be the best they can be, um, they're relying on us to do that. I'm looking forward to seeing how things evolve uh, with with your work. I'm definitely looking forward to the uh, track and field world championships being held in, in, you know, in Nike town, in track, what's it called? Track town, USA, Tracktown, USA, track town, USA. I hope you have a great, great time there. And I want to thank you again for being a guest on the bounce. Well, Jill, thanks a bunch. Really great to uh, be with you again. And there's an awesome opportunity for the United States uh, to be real leaders on clean sport over the next several years with the international Olympic world coming here and Paralympic world coming to the United States in a really big way. And I think we've got an awesome opportunity that we're, 
we're here at USADA to the extent we're involved. So we're, we're looking forward to being a part of that. It's not an easy task by any means <laughs> um, and a lot of work around it, but we're, we're up for the challenge. Thanks again, Travis. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Bounce, sports talk with a spin. The Bounce is hosted and produced by me, Jill Yesko. The podcast is distributed by your public studios. New episodes of The Bounce will be released the third Thursday of the month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Learn more about The Bounce at wypr.org backslash studios.